The portion I want to read in connection with our study today is the latter half of Acts 13. While you're finding it, I remind you that this is the beginning of Paul's great missionary work, starting by being separated by the Spirit of God at Antioch. And um, there, instead of the people of Israel being the object of address, he speaks to those who are of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, beginning to broaden the witness. Now the passage we read is starting at verse 38. Acts 13, verse 38. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold, ye despisers, and wonder and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. Acts 13 commences Paul's great missionary work. Acts 28 brings this aspect of it to an end. Here he says, Beware lest it come upon you. Acts 28 says it's come. They would not believe, though a man declare it unto you. Paul declared it unto them with no uncertain sound. He quoted Isaiah 6.10, Their eyes are shut, their ears are stopped, their hearts are hardened. And then the Gentile comes into view. Presently we'll see it's the same here. And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath, the next Sabbath day, came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy, and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should have been spoken to you, first have been spoken to you. But seeing ye put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so hath the Lord commanded me, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for the for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad, and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and chief men of the city, and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them out of their coasts. But they shook off the dust of their feet against them, and came to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. May the Lord bless that and its application to us presently. This is a recording made in the chapter of the opened book, and is number eight of the series of studies devoted to the prophecy of Isaiah. We have read together and I would suggest to you who are listening, if you care, to read the second half of Acts 13, where the, the Apostle, quoting from the Scripture, 
turns to the Gentiles. The, one of the first movements in the Acts of the Apostles where the turning to the Gentile is indicated which reaches its climax in Acts 28. And that we shall find is um, a feature of the passage we're to consider. Isaiah 49, verses 1 to 12, is a little section all to itself, and in that section we have the uh, emphasis upon turning to the Gentile. If you look at verse 6, he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. A light to the Gentiles. And then you will find, if um, you will look at chapter 60, it's put me in reverse. Chapter 60, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee, and the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. So one says, one says, I have given thee as a light for the Gentiles, and the other says the Gentiles are coming to thee because thy light has come. There's no contradiction, they are intertwined. Now I've said about this section 49, 1 to 12, and you may look at me and say, well why not 49, 1 to 13, or so on. So that although at the beginning of this study I felt it was too formidable a, a task to sketch out in front of you a book of 66 chapters and give you its outline, I'm taking this opportunity to bring it before your notice, not that we're going to consider it in detail, but you will have it in front of you, and if you then care to use it in your own private study and supplement and make up for the many passages I have to omit, it may be of service. So just for a moment, will you glimpse at this chart? And those of you who are sitting in the chapel, if you could read it all from where you are, you need not go to the oculist or optician for the moment. Uh, but if you find it difficult, well, it's impossible to make it larger because of the inability to use larger paper. Big enough in all conscience when you're trying to do it at home and not getting in the way too much. The sevenfold outline of Isaiah. You know, know that it falls into two distinct parts. Chapters 1 to 35, and then from chapter 40 to 66. 35 ends up with a ransom the Lord to return. But then there's a break. And there are three chapters devoted to Sennacherib. Well, Sennacherib isn't prophecy in the future. Sennacherib was history. But you see, there's a reason for that. We've already explained that, but I'll mention it again. Anybody can prophesy what's going to take place in 2,000 years' time and get away with it. Because very few of you are going to be living on the earth at least in 2,000 years' time to test it. And so Isaiah or somebody else may have been saying wonderful things are coming and you've got to take it for granted. But God throws you back upon what has already taken place. He says, look, what I did to Sennacherib, the mighty Assyrian power that brought terror in his train, I can do again. And it's interesting, friends, when we know how much this book is criticised, to know you could take any of your critical friends into the British Museum and you could stand them in front of a, a cylinder that not is not a copy, but is the original 
where Sennacherib has said, Hezekiah, I shut up in his royal city of Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. Now, a person couldn't write that who didn't exist, or wrote about somebody who didn't exist. It was the annals of that Sennacherib that were being inscribed for his benefit. Now, this this tremendous power that brought terror in its train came and stood at the walls of Jerusalem and told Hezekiah, don't you trust in the living God, uh, your so-called God? What gods of the other towns and nations have delivered them? Neither will you. And Hezekiah, instead of arguing the point, he laid the matter before the Lord. And then you remember, the Assyrian came down like a wolf on the fold. You remember Byron's poem. And without a human hand, that army was smitten. And Sennacherib went back to his own land, and not very long after he was massacred by his rebellious children. And if God could deliver in the past, then he can deliver in the future. And he's made it an integral part of the prophecy of Daniel to do this. The first half of Daniel is written in Aramaic. The second half of Daniel is written in Hebrew. And the Aramaic has to do with the Gentile side. And then after the history is all over, the prophecy begins. God says, what I have done, I will do. Well now, with regard to this set out, you will see that I've attempted to give you the disposition of the subject matter. And I'm very glad to be able to say that another writer, who had the ghost of an idea of what we call structures, had drawn attention of the sevenfold division of the book and left it there, never went further with it. Uh, but I've just demonstrated to you that the whole can be reduced under those headings and subdivisions. I'll leave it now to speak for itself, and we'll come down to the section which you see there, letter B, after the invasion, light and peace is the heading lifted out, because in that section comes that mighty chapter, Isaiah 53, to which we're approaching. And we should have to give Isaiah 53 a little bit more attention than one afternoon when that day comes. And you will see that the first member is chapter 49, verses 1 to 12, Lighten the Gentiles. And the last member is chapter 60, Gentiles coming to the light. And so that is the insistence upon this thing, that the Gentile has a place. Now, when, when we start reading this, we find... Um, that the Lord says in verse 4, Then I said, I have laboured in vain. Now, let's wait a moment. You remember that at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, as sure as we establish the fact that there is a risen Christ, as sure as we establish the fact that there is such a thing as resurrection, your labour is not in vain in the Lord. But here we have the statement, the feeling, I have laboured in vain. I have spent my strength for naught and in vain. And it's a, a, it's a something to be, to be dreaded, and to be uh, sort of avoided, that we should labour in vain. One of the Hebrew words for sin is weary, purposeless toil going round and round and never getting anywhere. Now, Christian witness must never take that character. We belong to one who is the risen Christ and no labour in his name can be in vain. But when we think of our Saviour, 
He came into this world without all those adjuncts. He came and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. He had been prepared the pathway by John the Baptist in fulfilment of the prophet Isaiah and they listened to his witness and some were baptized in the river Jordan but he was despised and rejected of men. And we must not think that because he was the son of God he didn't feel these things. We realize that he did. He is not untouched with the feeling of our infirmities. And these things were very real. And here's the prophet, prophet looking down the age and voicing these words. I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for naught. And then the Lord answers. And now saith the Lord that formed thee from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. We'll stop there for a moment. That was his purpose. There are some people, and I suppose it's natural, that if you emphasize, as you must, the place that the people of Israel occupy in the bulk of Scripture, when you say, the moment you start reading the 12th chapter of Genesis, you've entered into a portion of Scripture where the people of Israel will be the central feature, right the way through every book of the Old Testament, right the way through the Gospels, right the way through to the end of the Acts of the Apostles, including the epistles written by Peter, James and John, the book of the Revelation, and some of Paul's epistles. Quite a number of them. The people of Israel are the central feature. And then some people think, well, that seems to be unfair, because God is the God of all people. God is the creator of all nations. But when I say all nations, I've said the word that gives us the key. When you find and start reading Genesis, the 12th chapter, you'll find that God has paid special attention to one nation because that one nation was going to be the means of blessing to all nations. In thee and in thy seed shall all families of the earth be blessed. And the tragedy of Israel is that instead of rising to their high calling, they hugged it to themselves. Instead of realizing the Gentile was intended by God to be blessed through them, they made themselves a little garden walled around and put glass on the top and hugged it to themselves and called the rest of the outside world dogs. And instead of entering into their high calling, they were dismissed by God temporarily. And only when they look upon him whom they pierced and they confess and are cleansed and are brought back will they be able to function as God intends. But on the other hand, even though it stresses in the scriptures that the people of Israel were the first in view, it's only because, supposing you use a homely figure, supposing you're going to have water laid onto a house, or you're going to have electricity laid onto a house, or gas laid onto a house, you don't grumble at the men and say, why are you wasting time digging a trench? I want water, or I want gas. But he says, man, unless I dig a trench and put the pipe in, you won't get the water. So God was digging the trench and putting the pipe in because he intended the Gentiles should have blessing. But the pipe had to go in first. And if it had to be uh, circumvented and other ways come in while Israel are in their blindness, he'll do that. He's done it. That's where you and I come in. We're not blessed with faithful Abraham. We're not blessed in the terms of the Old Testament. We are blessed under terms that God never made known until the Apostle Paul was the prisoner of Jesus Christ and revealed that God had a place for us that had never been a part of Old Testament Scripture. Well now when you look at um, 
Another passage with regard to this question of the place that the people of Israel had in the scheme of things and the relationship of that to the Gentile by looking at Romans the 15th chapter. You do know, of course, in the early part of the of the Romans, it's the Jew first, and also the Greek. The Jew first. He comes first. Peter, standing up after the day of Pentecost, unto you first, God sent his son, to you first. And now we have the Apostle Paul saying this, in Romans 15, verse 8. Now, I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision, now the circumcision there refer to the people of Israel, for the truth of God, to confirm the promises, not made anywhere and everywhere, but to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. Now, confirming a promise is not bringing a promise that's something new. It's bringing a promise that's been made already and saying, now the time of fulfillment has come. And the fathers, according to Romans 9 itself, belong to the people of Israel. The fathers. Now, you stop there, that's one part of it. But the very next verse says that all this is a preparation and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. Now, do you notice the Apostle Paul has no need to say, as it is written, when he speaks about the preeminence of Israel, because everybody could see that. So he gives about four different references after this to give the Gentile a look in. So, shall we let him do it for us? That the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles, and sing unto thy name. And again he said, Rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. And you want another one he says? And again, Praise the Lord all ye Gentiles, and Lord him all ye people. And again Isaiah said, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles in him shall the Gentiles trust. And that word is the word hope. Carry it on to the next verse. In him shall the Gentiles hope, now the God of that hope, feed you with all joy and peace in believing. So you see, there is that emphasis that the Israel come first, but they come first because they were an intended channel of blessing. Again, you refer anybody to Matthew 10, go not into the way of the Gentiles, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, they think, ooh, that's limiting it, fancy not sending them to the Gentiles. But at the self-same time, we are told by the Gospel of John when the time came to write it that he also said, other sheep I have which are not of this fold. But the time to make it known is the time when that begins to operate. And so we have it kept quiet until the moment comes and John can give it later on. <coughs> the Lord himself, who, who forbade them to go to the Samaritans, went to a woman of Samaria and she said, this is the saviour of the world and they believed. So you see, God has not forgetting, forgotten the nations of the earth. He's working according to his program and when we see it in all its fullness we'll realise the reason why we may not do so now. So here we are back in the 49th chapter of Isaiah. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord and my God shall be my strength. He said it is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved of Israel. It's a light thing. Now, it wasn't a light thing from one point of view, was it? Nothing can be a light thing which deals with sin 
and death, as we realize what it says about this one who came to be the restorer and the redeemer, he was bruised for our iniquities, he was wounded for our transgressions, he poured out his soul unto death, but, he says here, it was a light thing, I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. And when the apostle at long last in Acts 28, in that all day Bible study that ended so tragically, he said, Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent to the Gentiles and they will hear it. Well, there's the same sequel here. The light to lighten the Gentiles and be my salvation unto the end of the earth. It's also interesting, if you'd like to turn for a moment to confirm this, to the Gospel according to Luke. Remembering that Luke was the right-hand man of the Apostle Paul, he joined him somewhere about Acts 16, and he's with him when he wrote his last epistle, Only Luke is with me. And in the um, Gospel according to Luke, we have an emphasis upon the Gentile rather strongly. And you will find uh, that in the second chapter, you read there was um, there was um, uh, an old Simeon. We are told that um, in verse twenty-five, and behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. So you see what he was waiting for. He was waiting for Israel's consolation. That was in his mind. And when he went into the temple, that was in his mind. The consolation of Israel. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Now he might have stopped there, but he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, but the Holy Ghost was upon him. And he went on, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. He was obliged to put the Gentile first, and the glory of Israel comes second because that's the order in which it was coming now. The Gentile was going to have salvation, while the poor Jew was going to be in his blindness, waiting all this time. So you see, these prophecies of Isaiah, they gather up much of this, and give you a little light upon the problem of the ages. Now we're back again. Verse 7 of chapter 49. Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, to him whom man despiseth. Again, you see, pointing out the one that's coming in this very section. He was despised and rejected of men. If we hadn't got a Bible and didn't know history, we would hardly believe, could we, that the Messiah, fulfilling all that the Scripture said about him up to that time, born at Bethlehem, as it says, and living as he did, doing what he did, that they could have that scripture in their mind and in their hands and in their synagogues and fulfill the very scriptures by rejecting him. And yet it was so. And so he's given here, him that man despises, to him whom the nation 
Abhoris. To a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship. Will you look and see what's coming before we get to the end of this section? Uh, Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Now then, notice verse 14 and 15. It starts with as, and it starts with so. As something, so something. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men, so shall he sprinkle many nations. I'll have to go into this when we come to this passage a bit more intimately. The kings shall shut their mouths at him, for that which they had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. They're going to be astonished. First of all, astonished at the fact that his visage was more marred than any man. And then, astonished, so in like manner will they be astonished at the high glory that's given to this one. We are beginning to get the rays of truth now gathering to a focus. They are focusing upon Isaiah 53, the chapter of all the whole prophecy, which I suppose is best loved and best known by most of us. Back again to Isaiah 49. Verse 8. Thus saith the Lord, In an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee. An acceptable time. This has a distinct meaning in connection with the people of Israel. Um, first of all, you must remember that all the offerings in Israel had to be acceptable. It shall be perfect to be accepted. I think we'll get some chapter and verse for some of these things while we're about it. We'll look at the one passage in Leviticus chapter 22 with regard to this acceptance. Leviticus 22, verses 20 and 21. Whatsoever hath a blemish, that should ye not offer, for it shall not be acceptable for you. And whosoever offereth a sacrifice of peace offerings unto the Lord to accomplish his vow, or a freewill offering in beeves or sheep, it shall be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no blemish therein. No spot, no scab, nothing broken, nothing superfluous, nothing missing. It shall be complete. It's wise for you to remember, without going into all the details, that when you read in the book of Leviticus, they offered a bullock, they did no such thing. They offered a bull. A bullock is a piece of meat walking about the, the field. You needn't worry about a bullock. You might be chased by a cow, but not by a bullock. A bullock's got no temper in it. It's just building up lumps of meat. But you look at a bull, it's the same animal. That A bull's complete. And that's the only one that was accepted from that family of animals. So we have this one, this one who himself was perfect, without blemish, set forth as without blemish and without spot before the foundation of the world, as we are told by Peter. He's leading on to a day which will be acceptable. And if this is going to fall in line with the same rule, 
in that day, the acceptable day of the acceptable year of the Lord, God will look upon his people then, whether they're Jew or Gentile, whether they're kingdom or church, and say there is no spot in thee, as we read in the Song of Solomon. Seems almost impossible when you think of the times in which we live, and our own frailty and imperfection, but it's coming. God is moving. And when at last he can write himself the words, no more, across sorrow and sighing and sin and death and curse, when he can say that no more, we should have reached the acceptable year of the Lord. But then it has other meanings. We might notice in Isaiah 56 uh, that there's a reference. Isaiah 56. That's a little bit beyond our section now. I think it's verses uh, 6, 7 and 8. Having to do with this this being accepted and bringing the stranger and the Gentile into relationship. Let's read 6, 7 and 8. Also the sons of the stranger that join themselves to the Lord shall serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, every one that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it, and taketh hold of my covenant. Even them will I bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar. For mine house shall be called an house of prayer for all people. Do you remember our Saviour saying that? But it's not recorded until John gives it after the end of the Acts is all over. My Father's house is a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God, which gathereth the outcasts of Israel, saith, Yet will I gather others to him beside those that are gathered unto him. So it's being stressed in Isaiah that Israel are going to be gathered. But the Gentiles are coming to the light. He's to be a light to lighten the Gentiles. And when the light shines with Israel, it's going to spread out to the earth and be a blessing outside. Forgetting us for a moment, Isaiah, and forgetting the prophecies, with regard to ourselves, if we take blessings from the scriptures and hand them to ourselves, there will be likely gathering the manna more than you want, it will corrupt and go, go bad. But if the blessings you receive are used by God to give a light to some poor other soul on the way, if you can adopt the language of Second Corinthians chapter 1, where the Apostle says how he was distressed out of measure beyond strength, even in despair of life, but he was comforted by God, and he says, now I can comfort you with the comfort wherewith I've been comforted of God. What I've had done to me, I can pass on to you and encourage you. That's the way in which we bear a witness. Well, so we go on with regard to this, uh, this emphasis upon the word acceptable. And of course there's one waiting for us uh, just a little bit further along in Isaiah which we must include, Isaiah 61. So this is the one which is quoted by our Saviour himself as recorded in Luke's Gospel. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the broken hearted to proclaim liberty to the captives. One of the expressions to proclaim liberty refers you to the great day of the Jubilee. When the trumpet sounds on that 49th and beginning of the 50th year, the Old Testament law said that every captive went out free. Every debt was cancelled. We started all over again. 
Under that economy, you couldn't get so fabulously wealthy, you'd have to give it all up at the end of 50 years. If you were selling a house at the beginning of 50 years, you'd get a good price for it. If it was only two or three years before the Jubilee, it wasn't worth selling at all, because it would go back to the original owner. That was a Jubilee. And the Jubilee is the character of the Bible. Seven times seven. Right through the Bible, and the trumpets blow in the book of the Revelation, and the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And at last the captives are free. So we have here, to set, proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Here he comes, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now you do know, don't you, that this is a very fine example of the principle of right division. There are some, of course, who, who withstand this. And they say, well, that's Paul's idea, or it's your idea. And you would say to them, now, if I can show you that Christ himself, our Saviour himself, accepted the principle of right division, would you consider it then? Well, I suppose they would have to say yes. Well, will you look at this then? We're looking at Isaiah 61, verse 2. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. You notice that, don't you? Now you'll turn with me to Luke's Gospel, the fourth chapter, and you'll see that our Saviour stopped halfway in a verse. I'll start reading from Luke 4, verse 18, in order to show you that the quotation in the New Testament endorses the reference in the Old Testament. There's no idea of changing or altering the words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them to the bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, and he closed the book. Now you see, if we are reading from Isaiah, it says to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God. But he shut the book, and he sat down, and then it says in verse 21, he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And you won't find the days of vengeance in Luke's gospel till you come to chapter 21. So we might as well see that they're there, although they weren't quoted by the Lord when he made that re reading in the synagogue. Chapter 21. Verse 20, when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out. And let not them that are in the countries enter therein too. Why? For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. You see, Luke is careful to safeguard the scripture. He didn't say that the Lord dropped the day of vengeance because it was never coming. He kept it in its place. There, in that synagogue, the Son of God, the Saviour in the flesh, standing as a man, he just quoted the scriptures, fancy, he was the word of God himself, but he read the scriptures and stopped halfway in the verse, so far as our version is concerned, and said, this day is this scripture fulfilled. But he didn't say, and of course the rest of it goes out and he's never coming. Oh, yes. He said the second coming of Christ is associated with the second half of that verse. Well, that's the principle of right division. 
keeping the scriptures in their right place. Don't mix up the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance. Don't mix up gospel and law, works and faith and so on, as so many seem to do. Well, back again to the 49th chapter of Isaiah. We're using this chapter rather as a springboard, aren't we, for getting the other scriptures into focus. I'd better come back now to verse 8 and read the verse. Thus saith the Lord, In an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee, and I will preserve thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages, that thou mayest say to the prisoners, Go forth, to them that sit in darkness, that are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed in the ways, and their pastures shall be in all high places. So this is the outcome of the acceptable year of the Lord and the giving of this one to be a covenant of the people. But oh, I mustn't stop, must I? These verse 10 is a wonderful picture of what that day will be. They shall not hunger nor thirst, neither shall the heat nor the sun smite on them, smite them. For he that hath mercy on them shall lead them, even by the springs of water shall he guide them. And then we, we get the words with which the next section opens, sing all heavens and be joyful. And then we get a figure, which is repeated. Verse 18, lift up thine eyes round about and behold, all these gather themselves together and come to thee. As I live, saith the Lord, thou shalt surely clothe thee with them all as with an ornament and bind them on thee as a bride doeth. And this a reference to the bride and the ornaments is again given later on in this um, same prophecy. Just a, a word if I can put my finger on it. Yes, chapter 61, where we've been looking just now with the quotation in Luke. It says, verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments. Now please, we're going to have a marriage at this chapel next Saturday. So you must be watchful you don't take this too literally. To be decked with ornaments. But there is a joyfulness about it, isn't there? I remember years ago, one lady was very distressed. She'd been brought up very, very severely. And she felt that it would be very wrong to have anything bright and nice when she was married. She was just uh, trying to please the Lord and dress in something drab. So I quoted this to her. And all she beamed. Uh, whether I would have to give an account in the Day of Judgment for, for helping this lady to dress in something pleasant or not, I don't know. But I'm sure not one of us have got to be dressed up in black and be mournful unless there's a need for it. And surely if you're going to a wedding and you're the essential features in it and you're going in black, I think you better turn around and go home again, don't you? All right. So while we don't expect our friends to deck themselves up too much, we welcome them here and we trust it will be a glad day for them. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments and as a bride adorneth herself with the jewels. And then you'll notice in chapter 62 the name Hefty Bar. Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, verse 4. Neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate. 
but thou shalt be called Hephzibah, and that was the name of the queen of Hezekiah. Hephzibah. But it also had a meaning. My delight is in her. And thy land shall be called Beulah. And that is the word that means marriage. For the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. Strange figure, but there it is. So here we have then, just in these few verses in Isaiah 49, some hints which we've been able to lift out. First of all, that our Saviour came and he was rejected. And apparently on the surface it seemed as though his labour was in vain. And so we read in Matthew the 11th chapter, when they would not repent because of their unbelief, and uh, although they saw the mighty works, he then said, Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Then comes the parables of Matthew 13, the parables of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And that is an indication that when Christ is rejected from one point of view, there may be brought into bear a mystery or a secret that has been already foreknown by God. But we leave that to speak for itself later on when we come to these other passages. We are moving on, as I've said, to the great chapter, we shall have to step through 51, 50 and 51, uh, when we are dealing with it next time. Uh, but we are now coming to the chapter that will have to be given a bit more patient consideration. And that is Isaiah 53. So that chapter includes in it so much with regard to the sacrificial work of Christ that I'm sure every one of us would be sorry if these things were just crammed into the few minutes we can get at each time with these meetings. So let us be thankful for the way in which this section begins and ends. A light to lighten the Gentiles at the beginning, and then they shall come to thy light at the end. Isn't it good to know that in these things the darkness is being dissipated? The day is coming when the darkness shall flee away, and it shall be in the light of his acceptance and his glory. We'll leave it there and pray that those of you who have got this prophecy of Isaiah before you will take these meetings that we have recorded as hints rather than anything else. Because if we're going to give the verse by verse and word for word examination of such a mighty prophecy as the prophecy of Isaiah, we shall be here to the end of time. And that would be disproportionate. I'm sorry that it's so, uh, but the only thing we can do is to hope that you will pick up the study with the hints given you and sit in the presence of the Lord for who can teach like him.